Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? Hey everyone, EU Confidential will begin after this message. A message from Edelman Brussels and the Public Affairs Council. The 2018 Trust Summit showed us very clearly that there is a major trust deficit in Europe. The findings of the Edelman Trust Barometer show that businesses have the opportunity to take center stage. 59% of respondents expected CEOs to take the lead on the issues that matter. Silence is no longer an option. NGOs, governments and media have all fallen behind business across Europe. But each institution faces its own set of challenges. If you want to discuss the results in more detail, visit www.edelman.be contact to arrange a meeting. Welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe. This week, we mark the one-year countdown to Brexit Day. For all of you hoping Brexit will never happen, just be aware, everyone in Brussels is planning that it will indeed happen, and they're only going to change course if and when the British people, via a parliament vote, a change of government, or a second referendum say otherwise. To whet your Brexit appetite, we have an interview with European Parliament Brexit coordinator, Guy Verhofstadt, a sometime bogeyman in the British tabloids, and a special feature from our producer Michelle Stoddart about the one institution that is both British and truly Brussels, the Brussels Press Review. Before we get to that, I want to thank everyone who responded to our audience survey. We got more than 300 responses. Amazing. And we're chewing over them right now. The very first thing I can promise is that we heard you when you said you'd like the podcast to be a little shorter. We're on it. Now it's time to hear from Guy Verhofstadt. He spoke to EU Confidential Executive Producer Andrew Gray, also news editor here at Politico Europe, in his office at the European Parliament. It was a hellish morning. There was block traffic everywhere, people running late, everyone mad. And Verhofstadt, ever the ideas man, after more than four decades of dealing with Brussels traffic, was still whirring with ideas about how to solve those problems. Car helicopters, anyone? Kiefer Hofstadt, thank you very much for joining us on EU Confidential. So we're a year in after the triggering of Article 50. We've got a year to go. How do you judge progress? Where do we stand right now? And where does that compare to where you thought we might be at this time? Well, we are in the middle of the process. So I think uh, we have now to move forward to uh, solutions for the outstanding issues inside the withdrawal agreement. That means uh, especially the, the question of Northern Ireland and the border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. And secondly, also the governance of the uh, whole withdrawal agreement, how it will work, the oversight of all this. And then uh, still we as a European Parliament uh, want to be sure that the um, citizens' rights are well protected and that the procedure, that is uh, a main thing, a main concern of us that the procedure is an easy procedure and not a bureaucratic nightmare. Uh, so we're going to invite in the coming weeks uh, the Home Office to the European Parliament to see with all specialists uh, and all MEPs uh, how it will work. Is there enough time to resolve those things? Have we cut it too fine or are we roughly, do we still have time? Oh, we have time until uh, October to uh, work it out because, as you know, in October the whole package has to go to the European Parliament. 
But uh, in the meanwhile, it's also necessary to have an agreement on the future relationship. That doesn't mean that we need to uh, sort out all details of that future relationship, but at least we need to have a concept, a vision, an architecture of that future relationship. And that's the reason why Parliament has, in its uh, last resolution, proposed uh, an association agreement as the way forward, because uh, it, uh, with an association agreement, you can take into account red lines of the UK side and at the same time apply the principles of the European Union. There is, in all point of view, a small path, I should say, uh, between red lines of the UK and the principles of the European Union. And do you think the Commission and the Council are receptive to that idea because they haven't embraced that formally at the moment? No, no. What we hear from both sides is that they repeat the UK said that red lines and at the other side the principles of the European Union. So our resolution is also based on the same principles. The only thing what we have added to it is that beyond the principles, how it could work. It's a, an example of how it could work. And an association agreement has the advantage that it is very flexible. You can put a lot of things in it. You can also put trade in it, uh, international cooperation, uh, internal security, things like that. And the second advantage of it is that you establish one governance of the whole relationship. What is not the case if you continue uh, with uh, different agreements, uh, a free trade agreement, an agreement on international uh, cooperation, an agreement on internal security, an agreement on cooperation, for example, in aviation, and so on and so on. So if we don't use the solution of an association agreement, my fear is that we will end in what I call a Swiss nightmare. And the Swiss nightmare, that means the fact that there is an inflation of agreements more than 100 we have with Switzerland, without any global governance. And uh, that's because of historic reasons, naturally. But we have to avoid that. But is the Council and the Commission, are they receptive to that idea in, so far? What do you think? Well, I, I think there is, from both sides, they are interested uh, in the idea. That was my feeling when I went to uh, the last meeting uh, to prepare the, the European Council, where European Parliament was also present. And they are also receptive, I think, from the British side, because it gives the possibility to have uh, uh, one framework and to uh, uh, not only talk about trade, internal security and international cooperation, but also to talk about the different problems uh, we will face in thematic cooperation. Uh, what we do with, our, with the fishery policies of the future, what we do with aviation, uh, what will be the participation of the UK in the Erasmus programme, what is the future of their contribution to the Horizon 2020? And I can continue like that, and so on, and so on, and so on. So the, the proposal we have put on the table is not only an association agreement, it's also indicating that there will be four pillars in this association agreement. Like I said, a pillar on trade, a pillar on internal security, a pillar on international cooperation and a pillar on the thematic uh, cooperation and thematic cooperation that could cover a lot of specific issues and specific requests from both sides. How long would an association agreement like that take to negotiate? Well, the principle needs to be achieved, so we need to conclude on the principle by October, that's clear. And then um, my idea is that you use the whole transition period to conclude the details of this. 
And that's already a tough, uh, a tough thing to do, huh? because in two years' time, that means that uh, you, you will have uh, more or less uh, two years' time to a little bit more than two years, uh, 20, 26 months to conclude on this. But that's possible, because then you have already an idea of the framework of the overall governance, because it's an association agreement. It's also based on the treaty in association agreement. As you know, an association agreement is in the treaty in Article 217. And also Article 8 says clearly that we need to establish or we can establish a special relationship uh, with the countries in our neighborhood. So Article 8 and 217 are good basis for that future relationship. What do you think is the biggest obstacle between now and October to getting to a deal? Well, I think that we are still uh, facing the issue of an island, uh, Northern Ireland. So we expect now uh, proposals by the UK side on this issue in the coming weeks and to see if that can solve the problem. And solve the problem, that means that there can be no hard border or hardening of the border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. Fortunately, we have a fallback solution if there is no real proposal avoiding a hard border from the British side, then we fall back on the solution that is foreseen in, in the agreement until now. You've been quite critical at some points of the, of the British government, of some British politicians. Um, is there anywhere where you think the Commission or the Council has, has gone wrong so far in the Brexit process? No, I, I try to, to be, we try as European Parliament to be constructive in all this. So we are very pleased with the cooperation with Michel Barnier, also with the Council. I think that three institutions work very well together in close cooperation, and that is also needed, that there is unity from the EU side. And what I have felt in my last meetings with David Davies and, and with the Prime Minister in, in Downing Street, uh, with Amber Rudd and, and with others, is also a willingness to, to look into uh, 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 the proposal uh, we have, uh, a positive reaction anyway. So do you feel the heat has gone out of this? I mean, it was obviously a very emotional debate at times, especially when money was being discussed. Do you feel it's kind of settled down yeah, a bit? Everybody thought that money was, would be the most, the most difficult part, and apparently it was not the most difficult part. But to solve the question of Northern Ireland, Ireland will be still a, a difficult thing, let's be honest, and maybe the most difficult one. And then, yeah, it starts the real work, because during the whole transition period, it will be necessary to... Um, uh, to find solutions for the many obstacles we shall find on our way uh, by uh, discussing this association agreement. Tony Blair was here recently. He was making the case here and in other places, including this podcast, that um, somehow Brexit could still be stopped, but the EU would have to make compromises too, in a sense, give more even than it was willing to give to Mr Cameron before the referendum. Do you detect any appetite in the Parliament for that? That's, we, we don't work under that assumption. Uh, that there is a change in, in Britain. And that said, it's purely a responsibility of the UK. It's in the UK that they have to make up their mind, if, is there a will to, to change the decision and so on. But it is not the assumption under which we work. Uh, if it should happen, then there is also naturally the approval needed of, of the EU, because since the triggering of Article 50, it is a, a procedure with, with two parties. So two parties have to agree on this, the UK, but also the EU. Are you confident that the EU27 will grant onward movement rights to UK citizens in the EU? In other words, the right to not just uh, live and work in whichever EU country they're in now, but to move and do the same in, in any other place? 
in all 27 you mean yeah that's all that's what we uh, request and initially there was a problem in the withdrawal agreement because in the withdrawal agreement there was an article a paragraph i think it was paragraph uh, 32 uh, who uh, made it impossible and that was at our request also skipped so uh, it was uh, put out of the text and, and we will continue to fight now to have a positive referral to that right so that in the final text of the withdrawal agreement, UK citizens living on the continent can easily move uh, and reside uh, in all countries of the 27. Finally, how do you think uh, you will be feeling a year from now? How do you well, I find it still sad. I think it's still a, a failure for the European Union that a big country like the UK is leaving. When the UK is leaving, it's difficult to say, oh, fantastic, we do it, uh, it's a success. No, it's a failure. But okay, that's a decision made by uh, the British citizens, uh, by the majority of the British citizens, and we have to respect uh, that. But at the same time, what we're going to do in the coming months is to speed up the in-depth reform of the European Union itself. Because we have to conclude from this uh, Brexit that an in-depth reform is needed. We need a, a European Union who is more effective, who is uh, maybe smaller, less bureaucratic, and is quite different from the European we have today. And I think that, for example, already Macron, the French president, in his speech before the Sorbonne, have given a good indication and a clear part of where we have to go in this work. Do you think he will join you in Aldi? Well, that's uh, for 2019. In any way, we work already together with him, and most of uh, my French MEPs have links with Thomas. Kiefer Hofstadt, thank you very much. That was Kiefer Hofstadt, the European Parliament's Brexit coordinator and leader of the Liberal Group in the Parliament. Before we return to the Brexit theme with our feature on the Brussels Press Review, now it's time to bring in the Brussels Brains Trust. Hi, Alva. Good morning. Hi, Lena. Good morning, Ryan and Alva. And just before we get into this week's Dear Politico dilemma, I want to update you on a dilemma we discussed several weeks ago. A European Parliament intern called Benjamin Oppermans had his ID stolen and misused by scammers. They tricked Benjamin into paying more than €700 to secure an apartment room that never existed. Now, thanks to that segment, another listener called Nicholas Denstadt realised he'd also been scammed. The great news is that thanks to warning from the podcast, Nicholas was able to find other accommodation before he arrived in Brussels. He didn't let the scam end his Brussels adventure. But the plea I would make to all listeners is pass the word around about this scam. Don't ever send money to landlords you've never met or rooms you've never visited. And also, if you're a victim, report it to the authorities. Now, I think we should move on to our dear Politico. It's one of my favorite elements of the podcast. Our correspondent writes, quote, Five years ago, I moved to Brussels. I work in a big think tank. I'm a specialist in Europe. I'm from Latin America. I lived in three different continents, and due to my family, I'm here now. My job is very interesting, and I like it, but what I hate is the city, the EU bubble. It's the most sexist, racist city I've lived in in my entire life. When I say I'm Latina, people think that I used to be a cleaning lady in my country, and I'm here because I am poor. Maybe it's because of my accent, but I'm never put in the front line by my bosses, although my boss has a very bad accent. But she knows everyone in Brussels, and she never helps me meet new people. Dear Politico, this city is very hard on those of us not from Europe. Tell me what to do to break these walls. Uh, it is not the easiest city 
But since I moved to Europe years ago, I have decided to take every sort of a comment or a question as an opportunity of engagement, an opportunity uh, of um, explaining where I come from, my region, my religion, uh, the culture, the interactions. There's a lot of stereotypes. There's a lot of labeling and branding. And sometimes uh, I'm asked questions that I'm sure that Europeans among themselves wouldn't ask. I mean, you wouldn't go and ask someone, are you Christian, Christian, or are you Christian Orthodox or a Christian Catholic? But people have the liberty to, to ask me about my religion and I, if I practice or not. But I decided to have thick skin and I decided to just engage and educate. Uh, if you have an accent, imagine a French-speaking English or an English-speaking French. I mean, they <laughs> will always have, ha, have an accent, so this is not a, a problem. If her bosses are putting her in the back seat just because she's Latina, well, just go and have a direct conversation and say, look, um, um, get an accent reduction uh, uh, courses, for instance, if that's really troubling. That, that's my point of view. I don't know. Yeah. I think from an English-speaking point of view, I really don't care who has an accent. I speak French with a very bad accent, and That's the example. great thing about English, is you can make exactly. mistakes in it. Yeah. And I, I honestly, native English speakers don't, we don't judge care. you for it. We don't care. Uh, at all and maybe that is a little bit of um, a thing that you're thinking about a concern that you have about yourself but I do want to say that we as native English speakers we don't care we have a high tolerance for that because we really like that everybody speaks our language and so much better than we speak theirs but yeah I'm really sorry that you you feel like that in Brussels that you're treated differently but I think Lena's Lena's right you you need to address that with your boss and say you know is is it what is it about me that I'm not being put front and center and take ownership for that and your and your job and, and make sure that you're putting yourself out there and if you're not being greeted with what the same encouragement, then you need to say that. I also and why th- you think it is. I think it's also important to take matters into your own hands sometimes. I Absolutely. think a lot of people, whether it's faced with a difficult dilemma in their life or it's about making their own choices with their career, they they sometimes underestimate how much power they have in the situation. So if you are out there in the think tank world, why not have a great Twitter account or some other social platform where you can directly communicate with other people? You don't need your boss's approval and you will be judged on the basis of the quality of what you're putting out there. You won't get results in three months or six months necessarily. It might be a process you have to go through for two or three years to build up that audience and and prove things. But I think that is... um, definitely something that you should consider. Don't wait for other people to let you do something. Figure out the things that you can do directly. And also, if you go with solutions for the situation, this accent issue, like find the course that you want to do and say, I'm here to solve what I perceive as a problem and make them admit that it's a problem for them or make them sort of realize they're being ridiculous and that they should stop worrying about this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I fully agree. It's an opportunity to educate people about her region. Just yeah. remember that. But your story is a very good reminder that these are real issues. And I've, I've honestly never spoken to a person of color in this town who hasn't mm. told me a similar story. 
And so I'm very happy to keep repeating those dilemmas or helping to solve anyone's dilemmas because I think there are still too many people in this town who think that because it's a small number of people who are not white that somehow these problems don't exist. Mm. And just Ryan, if I can add, and these people are from all different backgrounds. I mean, super high educated, exposed people that they lived abroad and came and still sometimes you get their comments. So it, it doesn't matter the level where, where you are. The, the, the ignorance is the same. Unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, good luck. Now it's time for another word from our sponsor. The landscape of trust in Europe is changing. After years at the top, the technology sector began to decline in the 2018 trust barometer, while the finance sector saw a 12-point gain in 2018. Struggling to earn trust in your sector? Get in touch via www.edelman.be contact. Now it's time for something a little different, a special feature, a dive into the world of the Brussels Press Review. What's that, you ask? Lots of people in Brussels are dealing with the consequences of Brexit, but it affects one group more than most, the British community. In many cases, people have made their homes here for decades, and what better way to get a sense of how they're feeling than to attend the event that is both quintessentially Brussels bubble and British, the annual press review. For those of you who don't know, the press review is a collection of sketches, skits and songs all about the EU, performed by Brits, performed by journalists, former journalists, and their friends. EU Confidential producer Michelle Stoddart spent the day with the Press Review cast and crew as they practiced and performed this year's show to find out how Brussels Brits are feeling about Brexit. I came here in 1979 as the Europe editor of the Press Association, the national news agency in the UK. By the time I got here, they were just having the first direct elections to the European Parliament. There's a proper European Parliament for the first time, and I think there was a sense that everything was settling in by then. Having said that, all the way through, there's always been arguments, but there are in every family. I mean, because this is just a big 28-people family, really. And someone at New Year had obviously read that the, the Bulgarian presidency was coming in, and said to me in all seriousness, because of course we ended up talking about Brexit, said, it's obviously getting serious because they've changed the presidency. I mean, I must say, when I do any public speaking or, or any, anything like that, I, depending on the, the audience, I always start by apologising for being British. Um, and it's designed to get a laugh, but sometimes it's taken quite seriously. It, it, it's settling in now that it's happened. It still seems, when I'm asked about it in interviews, I usually avoid getting too, uh, too passionate about it. I simply say I, I've, I can't see any upside to leaving. Now, if you talk to a lot of Brits here of all sorts, Brits in the institutions or Brits who work here in, in corporate life or whatever, some of them barely can talk about it, even now. Seriously, they really, they, they just can't think of it. They can't, can't really accept it. And in fact, there's stuff in this, in this, this show we're at. Um, there's just a sketch where um, a, a person goes to, to see the doctor because she refuses to believe that Brexit will happen. The sooner we get back to business as usual, the better for all concerned. And how do you think Brexit will be stopped? Well, I don't know that, Doctor. I'm not an expert, but I do know it will. I see. He offers her some, some counselling and some how to get through the grief. That, that's all, really. But there, there are people, I mean, there are people who think even now that it can, it can be stopped. Okay, so, so what are these five stages, then? Bewilderment, opposition, 
resistance, indignation, and shock, known as B-O-R-I-S. <laughs> oh, Boris. Is, is Boris curable? Sadly, no. And now all we're hearing, and everyone, every single person, from the highest political person to the lowliest worker, I think, sick and tired of facing this daily diet of Brexit, which is inevitably we all must. I mean, of course you are, it's big news, but you just risk for a day. And I, I'll tell you what, this is the third year running this show has obviously been mentioning Brexit, and I don't have the courage to have the show and say not one word about Brexit. I think it would be cool. I think it would be good for people's mental health, frankly. But that's when the Brexit rots it in. <laughs> we were the kings of Eurovision. We were the kings of pop music. And then we weren't. The inside track, inside baseball on Brexit is that if we win, Brexit's over. <laughs> I, asked, I asked at the start of the show last year, I said, how many of you were British last year and how many of you are now Belgian? And you know, quite a lot have done it. Um, and some who've only been here a short time find they're now having to go through a language test in certain communes of Brussels and sort of prove they're Belgian enough, you know. Well, no, no disrespect to Belgians, I don't particularly want to become Belgian. But you don't lose British nationality anyway. Kind in the galaxy. A rebel and a lone wolf. He insists on speaking in his ancient tongue. An archaic language remembered by only a few and understood by none. The last language of the Dagobah system? No. French. Uh, John Robinson, I've been here a long time, 46 or 47 years. Um, uh, so I've been here longer than anywhere else, obviously. Um, uh, at least I hope it's obvious. <laughs> and um, uh, I've been involved in EU communications one way or the other throughout my career here. I was here actually before the UK joined, so I was here in fact before the flood. I am the very model of a Tory Brexit minister. <laughs> I pretend I'm patriotic, but my motives are sinister. Um, but I came out here not just for a job. In fact, I didn't have a job when I came out here. It was a bit like the uh, Western Frontier in terms of journalism and so forth. For a lot of people, and for myself included, we came out here not just to have a career, but to contribute to something we actually believed in, that is to say, the construction of Europe, the building of Europe. I mean, just to give you a bit of a personal parenthesis, I mean, my father was involved in the Second World War, my parents were very, very actually pro-League of Nations, pacifist type of people, but once the war started, they were engaged. After the war had finished, they basically swore to themselves that this kind of thing should never happen again. So I was educated in a family, and a lot of people uh, were in a similar position, where they, you know, we were, we were making openings to Europe. Here in Brussels, I am totally ineffectual. Um, uh, there are a lot of people over here now who've made their careers by making a more than professional commitment. I wouldn't say it goes far and say an ideological commitment, but al almost an ideological commitment to the European, to the European, uh, the ambition of having a, a united Europe and closer integration. And for people like me, I find that what has happened, what has happened is 
is very, very sad, painful, and injurious, in my view, to Britain's best uh, objective interests. Since uh, nearly 10 years, I've taken out Belgian citizenship as well. So I have a Belgian passport as well as a British passport. But I'm very glad that I did, because at least in terms of values and social values, political governance, I find that I can identify more with the European style of political and social democracy than the one that's currently taking over Britain. Don't listen to the news and any experts who may say it's fake that we can soon have and simultaneously eat our cake. I think what I like most about this thing is that it's, we're playing, I mean, let's be clear, we're playing to a, an audience which wants to enjoy itself, so we don't have to try, we aren't any great actors. Um, <laughs> and that's part of the enjoyment. Uh, but it's the idea that we're creating something with the audience together because we're on, a, uh, on the same sort of wavelength about the issues that we're trying to send up. My name is Patricia Kelly and I've been here since 1974. I was sent here to cover British entry into the EEC at the time and I worked for a, a number of different organisations. My uh, biggest claim to fame, I was the CNN bureau chief in Brussels for 13 years. When I first came to Brussels, a group of us got together and, and did a little... Um, we had an annual dinner and we did a little show within the margins of that dinner. So it was a press dinner. Uh, once a year it was a Christmas dinner and then every year it sort of got later and later and later. And then we dropped the dinner bit and just started putting on a show. So I've been doing this for now more than 40 years. Um, I think many British expats are of the opinion that it's not a great idea, but looking beyond that, looking at it from an, from an ideological point of view, I think if our bureaucrats and politicians don't listen to what they're hearing from their various publics, then the British exit from the European Union might not be the only one. We hear a lot of talk about, you know, let's punish Brits um, for doing this so then nobody else will do the same. I think there's basically, fundamentally, something wrong with an outfit that thinks it has to punish um, its members instead of changing things to keep them in the club. We've got to take the shepherd's I, don't, I really don't think that, that we'll see huge, huge changes in the way that we lead our daily lives, certainly the people that live here. And I, for one, certainly will not be taking Belgian nationality. I'll keep my British nationality. I come from a long line of military people, and they fought a lot of wars throughout the world to free Europe and, keep, and bring democracy to Europe. And I really do think that my old dad would roll in his grave if he thought I was going to dump the nationality that he worked so hard to preserve. 
I often wonder as well, what would happen if we said to those Brits that have taken dual nationality, not from ideological reasons, but for purely selfish reasons, because they're worried about healthcare, they're worried about, you know, maybe not being able to stay here. But I wonder what they would actually do if we said, okay, fine, uh, you can become Belgian, but you've got to give your British passport back. I think they'd be thinking twice. She swallowed the moggy to catch the spider called Boris that wriggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly, she swallowed the fly to catch the lie. But I don't know why she swallowed the lie. And I don't think patriotism is a dirty word. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I, I'm a patriot about Europe as well. Um, but, um, and I don't think that the way the European Union is handling its affairs is the right way forward for the majority of people in Europe, but that's just a personal opinion. What's your favourite sketch from tonight's show? Um, well, I like, I like a lot of it. I, th- I love um, Duncan Lumsden's Poet Laureate. first poem, fairly short, is entitled simply, Hot Air. There is no noisier, more gaseous, noxious EU institutional fart than Schwitzenkandidat. I love anything he does because it's very funny. Of course, Jeff, who writes a lot of the material, is also very good. He wrote the song that I'm singing tonight. And, uh, and after all these years of working together, he still hasn't realised that I only have a range of five notes and he needs to write to that. But anyway, we'll do our best. You hate baked beans on toast and fish and chips in a battered fried way. That's why we have to take the mother's pride. I'm Cathy Smith. I've worked here in Belgium, in Brussels, for the last 20 years on and off, either as a journalist or as a media trainer and conference moderator. And uh, I've been doing this show for probably 20 years too. There was one point where we thought, could we dare to do the show and not mention Brexit? Because we know the audience is expecting it. We thought we could have the shock factor. But I mean, inevitably, it's just going to be the focus. And uh, we're trying desperately to do some other sketches and songs that aren't just Brexit focused, because we know the audience will get fed up by the end of the evening. We were all horrified and, and surprised and horrified particularly at the complacency of the voters because, you know, people didn't get out to vote, young people didn't get out to vote and it was one of those situations where you just could not believe it and then, you know, it was only on a par with when Trump was elected, you know, we had the two horrors in one year. Getting heavier and heavier. We had a tweet from one viewer called Carlos who says he has to get away from the rain in Spain and he's come up here to Waterloo in I'm already a Belgian citizen, so I've got dual citizenship. And I wouldn't have done that had it not been for Brexit. I mean, this is just a sort of an insurance policy, I guess. I think we feel angry that what's happened, and I'm not sure that the UK is a country that I want to go back to live in. I don't know. I mean, I may do, but at the moment I'm happy to have 
you know, to, a foot in each camp. You are listening to Michelle Stoddart speaking to the cast and crew of the Brussels Press Review, a.k.a. EU Nerdprom. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We'd love for you to officially become part of the EU Confidential community by signing up at politico.eu forward slash registration. You'll get a weekly newsletter that includes the podcast and invitations to any podcast-related events. EU Confidential is a team effort. It couldn't happen without Michelle Stoddart, Andrew Gray, Wei Dong Lin, and Antonio Fernandez.